On this episode of the Fellowship Podcast by CMF International, I continue my conversation with Tim Ross, a former CMF missionary to the Maasai of Kenya. Tim is going to share with us about the rhythms uh, for his life and ministry with the Maasai, as well as the gift of receiving hospitality from the people that he served. If you haven't heard the first episode that I did with Tim, it's back on episode number four, and I would suggest you go back and give it a listen. And just a technical note about this episode, there's a couple moments where the, the audio isn't the best, but I suggest you just press through because there is so much wisdom and so many great stories with insight that it is definitely worth listening to. I'm your host, Jake Moore. Welcome to The Fellowship. Hello and welcome to the Fellowship Podcast by CMF International. I'm your host, Jake Moore, and today we get to continue our conversation with my good friend, Mr. Tim Ross. Tim, it's great to have you back on the podcast yet again uh, for a second time. And this this last time, we had the opportunity to hear about your calling to ministry, um, your journey to the mission field, joining up with CMF, heard about your first year in language studies, uh, living in a little shack with a family, uh, you and Marsha and your two boys, um, and the, the joys, uh, truly, uh, and what would probably be considered suffering for a lot of us other missionaries. Um, and so on this episode, I'd love to talk a little bit more about, uh, the remaining years of your service with the Maasai people. What were, rhythms of ministry uh, for you, and what did the day-to-day look like for you as well, as well as maybe weekly, monthly, or quarterly patterns for life and ministry? So could you maybe flesh out a picture for us on what did things look like after language school for you? Sure. Yeah. Um, we had a, an active ministry in the villages in the place where we lived, the Maasai, um, and life was um, not separated exactly, but Marcia had a lot of, of duties that that she gave attention to, and, and so did I. Mm-hmm. Um, we had young kids at that time, um, sometimes babies, sometimes toddlers. Yeah. As they grew, Marcia began homeschooling them as well. Um, she, she, she had an education background. background. She does. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was always involved in... Um, language learning in the early years and maintained uh, a ministry with uh, the women of our area as well and uh, Bible studies and sometimes uh, going to women's courses and things like that. Um, For me, I began uh, a series of kind of itinerant uh, teaching days in different parts of the the work area where I live. And uh, so I might teach uh, in any number of villages from one to five um, villages where um, I began a a long process of uh, telling stories through uh, creation, through the life of Jesus, and and calling for folks to to make some decisions for Christ uh, after a, a long period of teaching. I usually would take a long fellow Maasai friend and uh, we would do these sessions together. 
it would be this would be time just out in the middle of the village um people would gather sometimes mm -hmm. animals would be dragging through or what might be happening mm -hmm. um but we would uh, sing some songs together we would tell some bible stories we'd answer some questions uh there was always um a chai to be drunk and sour milk and food to be eaten and uh so they were they were full busy days, and oftentimes I'd I'd be on a motorcycle, um, making these village to village stops. Um, sometimes I'd spend the night there. Sometimes we'd have uh, larger uh, courses as well. And um, basically, it was uh, basic frontline evangelism. Mm -hmm. uh, and later, as small churches began to gather, uh, there'd be it kind of shifted into into leadership training more. But there were always um, initial evangelism uh, encounters uh, in certain areas for a good long period of time, year, year and a half. Um, and then as young churches began to emerge, we would uh, we'd be working to, to train those folks. We also had um, some different kinds of development work that we were trying to do as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, we worked with literacy, uh, CMF's literacy program, helping teach people to read their own language so that they could read the Bible and other Christian materials primarily. And um, I, I managed a little beekeeping clinic. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I inherited that from other missionaries and probably didn't do a very good job at it, but worked at that. We, uh, we worked with uh, animal care. Uh, sometimes, sometimes I would help to manage a, a when a furloughing missionary uh, was uh, was uh, gone for the for a period of time, and then for over a year we worked in uh, drought relief and uh, famine relief among the Maasai uh, when a hard drought hit hit our area. So uh, lots lots of work uh, going on there. So the days were uh, were long and busy. Generally speaking, uh, Marsha was uh, at home and uh, homeschooling kids, taking care of kids, and uh, and squeezing in language study and mm -hmm. time. And uh, oftentimes, uh, we'd get together with folks at, at night as well in, uh, in villages and um, church folks coming over. There were always always a lot of needs that uh, mm -hmm. attended to. Would the church folks like the evenings, would that be you as a family going to sit around a fire or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. It would be, it'd be just like that. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes things in our area kind of slowed down at night. Um, there were a lot of wild animals out and basically the Maasai cows came home and, and uh, they kind of shut up the villages. And so generally speaking, we were, I think things quieted down a bit. Uh, when folks came, sometimes it was because somebody was sick. Sometimes there would be a party or a gathering or a prayer time or a church meeting. But um, most of the time, evenings were were fairly quiet. So it was a bit of a respite. I'm intrigued by the idea of uh, the guys traveling with you or doing ministry with you. What did that look like? Was the, Were those guys believers prior to you coming there? Were they from a different area? Were they guys that you had met and brought to Christ? Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, we had a little bit of each of those uh, scenarios and situations. Uh, but most of them were, were young Christians. 
I hadn't been Christians for a long time. One of the guys became a believer when one of our CMF um, missionaries uh, taught in the area. Um, another uh, became a believer through the ministry of, uh, of a good friend who was a veterinarian who was seconded to CMF. Mm -hmm. And uh, he lived and worked about an hour away from us. Um, and uh, a couple of them became Christians through the, the time that, that I was teaching as well, certainly. You had mentioned also a number of different things that you guys were doing from drought relief to dealing with animals to yeah, animal care, husbandry to medical care. It Was that over the span of the eight years you served there? That wasn't all just happening in that first year right out of language school, correct? Was that spread out over time? It was spread out over time, but uh, there are elements of it uh, where you live. You know, we, we own one of the only vehicles in the area. And so anyone who needed a vehicle for any reason uh, came over to, uh, to seek some help. Um, medical care is uh, really spotty out, out in the bush. And so oftentimes... Uh, folks who needed care for either animals or for people uh, would would pop by and see if there could be some help found. And um, transport needs would be many, um, serving as an ambulance or serving to all stuff, uh, cows, people. Yeah, it, it was uh, pretty intense. There, there are a lot of needs in a, in a, in a, in a village. Well, as you think over those eight years and all of the stuff that you were involved with, what were the things that were life-giving to you when you when you think about the ministry? A lot of pouring out, it sounds like, a lot of giving of yourself, but what, what were things that built you up or, or bolstered you to wake up every day and to do ministry or to do it week in and week out? Yeah, I'd say there, there are several things that, that were life-giving to me. Um, first of all, uh, family life was uh, incredibly life-giving. You know, we lived a long way from, from our homes. This is before the age of the internet. Uh, phone service was, was not available where we lived. You know, it might take five, six weeks for a round trip letter to get back to the States and back to us. Um, and so we, we just learned to rely on one another. And uh, we loved uh, those, those long nights you know the uh, the COVID situation where you're you don't have many places to go and you're kind of at for long periods of time. It really has reminded me a lot of those years in Kenya, and uh, so the family learns to uh, converse with one another. We learn to play games together, to be there for one another, especially with young kids growing up in the household. It was, it was really joyous. Just uh, I gained a lot of goodness just from being with family. Spread that out a little bit further. I love village life, and um, and I love the simple action of living with neighbors and interacting with people every day. And uh, it can get a little bit overwhelming, but uh, whenever I started getting uh, antsy and anxious, almost always I realized that the remedy for me was to spend more time with people, speaking Maasai. Than, than less. Uh, That's really intriguing to hear that. Yeah, you you go in deeper. You're saying that was the remedy, not pull back, not find, get a break. 
it was to spend more time with people to to delve further into language. Yeah, I think that sometimes in our kind of setting, when you're stationary at home, you have lots of people who are coming to see you, to your house. And in many situations, it's people who have a need, have something they want, a lot of uh, financial requests and things like that. And it could tend to get frustrating for Americans, certainly for us. And uh, and yet when you're out in the villages, that's an opportunity for um, your African neighbors to shine. And one of the things they do better than anybody in the world in the world is uh, hospitality. And so uh, they loved visiting. They always had time to sit down over a cup, cup, of, cup of tea and and uh, and have a visit. And, and that was a time when they poured their friendship into into us. And so village time was was sweet and uh, and good almost always. Yeah, I think of you and Marsha and your family as one of the most hospitable families I've ever spent time with in my life. And I wondered, I've always wondered, was that a lot of that shaped by Kenya, by the Maasai people? Were you like that beforehand or was it really during those 8 years and experiencing the way that they were culturally hospitable to you that you then were marked by that and continued to do that to be very hospitable to others to that to this day uh, even in your home in Johnson City I think I come from hospitable people but certainly um, it was shaped by time with the Maasai and and then the other area you talked about uh, you asked about things that gave us life there's one one other group of people that that poured life into us. And that was that was our teammates, and um, and I would include them in this uh, growing edge of hospitality. Um, we I think it's the closest that we've ever lived personally to what I would call a New Testament community. Was being a part of that team, uh, incredibly powerful relationships. Um, we fought hard. Uh, we loved each other. We 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 counted on one another, and even though we didn't live so close to one another, um, we uh, we planned together and we built churches together, and uh, we lived life in powerful ways together. Um, we prayed for one another. We uh, we we cared for one another when we were sick, and and even when we had death. Uh, strike us. So, um, so I would say that 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 team uh, aspect of life uh, was was incredibly formative for us and shaped us in powerful ways. Oh, I'm I'm sure it was. Um, could you tell us a little bit too about that death aspect? Like, was that just someone in the community, or actually someone on your team that had passed away? Uh, we don't necessarily have to mention any names uh, uh, if, the, if we need to be sensitive about that. But just how, what happened, or, or how, how did your team navigate that? That would be really interesting to hear because it's pretty rare at this point uh, in CMF's history for us to have any teams experience loss in that way uh, on the field. So if you could share a little bit about that, Tim, that would be interesting. Yeah, sure. Uh, we had two separate ed- incidents, um, actually three. One happened just before we got there where CMF lost, uh, we lost a teammate who was seconded to the team 
uh, in a motorcycle accident. He was a veterinarian. And so we heard about that when we, when we arrived. But, um, you know, most of the time, life in, in a rural African village is, uh, is good, but there's a hard edge to it as well. And uh, sickness and, and trouble um, are never far away from your mind. Um, political instability, there are lots, lots of things that, that can come against people. But um, personally, we, um, we had two situations that were grievous. Um, one was we had a, a teammate with CMF, a wonderful man who uh, had five kids. Three of them were grown, two of them were still at home. And uh, he was going to be a uh, furlough replacement for us and uh, was making his way up to our house, uh, was involved in a, uh, a motorcycle um, accident and uh, died out on the plains of uh, the Loita Hills. So um, it was incredibly traumatic. And um, Maasai came and, and told me about it. And uh, I went out thinking that he was injured uh, it began to dawn on me that what they were trying to say to me without saying it was that he had passed. And I'd figured it out by the time that, that I got to the place where his body was. And um, You were the first on the scene, uh, other than the Maasai people that had found him. Yeah, there, that's true. Um, I think there was a local area security guy, um, maybe a local policeman who maybe was kind of keeping watch, waiting for some other help to come. Um, and so I had to, um, go to town and, um, it's about two and a half, three hours away, uh, picked up another one of our missionaries. We came back to the site where, um, a police presence had been left and they had to do their investigation. And, uh, we brought his body into town and, um, people had gone into action to inform his family, the rest of the team, we, uh, we, he, he had always wanted to be buried uh, in Africa. He'd worked in Africa before he was with our team. And um, so we went through that process of, uh, of working, uh, figuring out how to, how to do everything that needed to be done for that, that family. And uh, it was incredibly difficult. And yet, uh, powerful and life-giving, and um, you know that's when you discover uh, what kind of team that that you have, and uh, what people are willing to to do. Um, and so, it um, you know we we were willing to to do the hard work and the hard lifting for one another. Um, yeah. So he he passed, and that that was. Uh, it was a real difficulty. His name was James Moore hmm. and, and a uh, great guy. Yeah. I, I can't imagine the loss and the grieving that you guys as a team would have gone through. His family would have experienced that uh, would have been extremely traumatic. And I'm sure still is probably even a raw nerve uh, to touch on even decades later uh, now for you. Um, the other side of the life-giving, so you mentioned family, you mentioned 
the the ministry itself, like the community, the people that you were serving with and your team were all these life-giving elements to those eight years of service with the Maasai people. What would be the converse of that? What would be what were some of the things that were maybe draining for you? Uh, maybe either in retrospect, looking back, uh, or maybe you knew acutely right there in those moments that I need to be careful or I need to to guard myself of those life draining moments. Yeah, one of the hardest things I think that Americans face going abroad, living locally, and and uh, having a pretty open home and life is. Um, um, it's the jolt between being a missionary in the United States where you're at the bottom of the economic ladder, um, where people are doing nice, kind things for you all the time and uh, feeling sorry for you, the poor missionary, to uh, going into an African village setting where suddenly uh, you're the person with resources and uh, you're the guy that's got a vehicle. Um, and uh, suddenly people are looking to you to help uh, their own economic um, interests and issues and problems. And, and certainly um, it's, uh, it's difficult being um, the guy on the bottom of the economic ladder, but it's also difficult being, being at the top and making decisions. Um, a lot of my friends, and it certainly happened to us as well, it can be, can be draining. You always feel like you're making bad decisions. Uh, if you decide to get involved, it's it can be thorny and difficult. Um, and if you decide not to get involved, then you deal with uh, the guilt of uh, of living living with that and trying to trying to uh, be conservative with your resources and and um, and it's not just the resources of uh, of money, although that's that's part of it. But uh, the resources of, of time, the time that it takes to uh, get jerked out of bed in the middle of the night to, to, to go on some kind of a medical run or, or uh, some kind of emergency that's happening. Um, and so that can, it can all be pretty draining. But uh, it really helped me to, uh, to have uh, brothers and friends who were further along and uh, learning to live in this culture than, than I was. And so, frankly, uh, Gary Brock, I think, just saved my life in ministry simply by starting to watch how this guy lived and, and seeing how he navigated uh, these choppy waters and, mm-hmm. uh, and trying, to, trying to emulate what, what he was doing. So it was, uh, it was a great learning curve for me. Yes, again, I guess reflecting back on the life-giving things that having teammates to look up to, to follow their patterns is what helped you navigate the life draining aspects of your ministry. It sounds like, and, uh, it sounds like, yeah, you had people like Gary Brock setting a pattern of life and ministry that was worth following. Uh, and that that's pretty amazing to have as a teammate. Yeah. And then, um, what helped us through that, you know, we had, we had other kinds of, uh, ways to recharge that that we learn through the years. Um, our team did things together, and we've so valued our time together. Uh, we not only got together to talk over strategy and do all the business end of things, but but all through the our time in Kenya, um, we were constant in our spiritual attention to one another. 
we hosted uh, spiritual retreats that uh, sometimes would bring some people in, somebody in. Sometimes we would uh, lead them ourselves, but uh, we'd get away for a few days and, and really spend time together. We uh, split the team up into smaller parts. And, and so every month or six weeks, uh, we would come together as a little regional group to talk about our lives, our ministries, and to worship and to pray together. Uh, those became life-giving moments for us. And, um, and then I think um, I also learned that it, there may be a long period of ministry when you can't get away, you know, where, where it's pretty every day, but you can learn to set some boundaries. And I remember how my life began to change when I decided to uh, quit transacting business on Sundays. Um, and it was a seemingly pretty simple change, but, uh, but it began to have good effects on us. And getting that word out and, and, and began to live by it, began to hallow time uh, and, and to set some patterns that were uh, more sustainable and life-giving for our families. I also learned that um, that sometimes you can put up with a lot if you know that there's a break that's coming sort of on the horizon. And so we would uh, set some times either to get away, sometimes maybe go to the coast together for a spiritual retreat. Um, sometimes uh, some of us guys would get together for a, a motorcycle trip. And I know that that's close to your heart, Mr. Jake. Um, Absolutely. We would... Uh, put fuel in one side of the bags and food on the other and, and get out for two or three days of riding in the beautiful African uh, countryside. And uh, these times were important for us to, uh, to blow off some steam, to uh, pray for one another, talk deeply about our lives and uh, the friendships that we made uh, during these days together. Um, have sustained us even to today. Uh, they're as deep as any friendships that, that we've ever made in life. And uh, we, we treasure them and, and value them. So, so when you talk about ways to recharge uh, or Sabbath, um, it sounds like you had kind of two aspects of that. You had some time built in weekly, which maybe needed to be communicated to the community at large that Mr. Tim's not doing business. He's not buying or selling things, <laughs> camels, goats, or other things on Sundays. Um, but then you also had something to look forward to. Uh, was that also like a word of advice from teammates? Or is that something after your first year of ministry doing language study, you're like, okay, I've got to set these boundaries weekly as well as annually. How did that play out for you guys? Well, I just say, if you don't take care of yourself, nobody's going to take care of you. Hmm. Um, and so for us, you know, we also set some family patterns of, of, uh, of worship and um, study together, playtime together. So all that was important. Um, the other amazing thing that, that I discovered was uh, just the resources around us. And so I would say that these motorcycle safaris were part of that. Mm. But I also developed, uh, while I was in Kenya, a, a deep love for the desert. Uh, and so getting away sometimes with some close friends and uh, taking trips uh, deep into the Turkana desert uh, was incredibly uh, life-giving to me. And at first I didn't even understand 
what was happening. You know, I thought we were just on a fishing trip, you know, to the a desert lake in, in the in Turkana. But I came to realize that that these were were actually opportunities to uh, empty my life in a in a big kind of empty place hmm. and um, and to allow just the goodness of the sort of the the throbbing of the of nature that was around me to uh, sort of feed my soul hmm. and um, we'd come back from those journeys and and uh, all the anxiety would be drained from us and uh, you'd be ready to go for a while they, they were incredible times yeah. so I've I've learned to uh, not only to desire that, but I've learned to find those times in in various places in the years since. How often did you get to have those trips though? Were they usually like every six months or at once a year? How did that play out for you in your rhythm of life and ministry? Yeah, I'd say that team-wise, I think we would try to have two spiritual retreats a year. Sometimes it would be in a fairly um, close place, maybe within Maasai land. And, uh, and sometimes we would tack them on to the beginning of a team meeting. So you'd have two days of a spiritual retreat uh, at a retreat center where, where the team was getting ready to spend three days transacting business. And, uh, and yet sometimes they were in really beautiful places as well. And then the uh, the other getaways were ones that we would plan with perhaps another family mm. or perhaps a few of the guys would get together you know and make make some kind of trip on a motorcycle or or uh or out into the wilderness but um that was maybe like once a year mhm yeah for a few days at a time mm-hmm. you had you had also mentioned uh rhythms for your family and i'd love just with to think about you and Marsha, uh, ways that you had each other's back, ways that you were an encouragement to one another during that time. I can imagine it was hard for her. I, I say a lot of times that Aaron had the harder job than I did uh, in teaching uh, and keeping our family alive <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere. So I'd, I'd love to know ways that you guys watched out for each other uh, and guarded each other and even found ways to connect uh, during those eight years with the Maasai. Yeah. I can remember one of my other teammates, uh, saying that he didn't even know his wife before he went to Africa. (laughs) And, uh, that resonated just a little bit, but, uh, I would just say that, um, that I'm in a really great relationship and marriage. And, um, in those years in Africa, uh, we probably didn't know what we were getting into, but we absolutely got into it with the right person. Um, so um, we've always had good years, and uh, we look back to those years in Kenya as, as great years of of just pouring time and uh, and love into to one another. Um, sometimes you don't realize it's hard till you get out of it, but uh, we've uh, each other through sickness and health. Mm-hmm. Uh, in times when you're uh, way out on the edge of uh, civilization, it seems through some dangerous times and some scary times, and uh, and all within the context of uh, a deep, powerful sense of family, with uh, 
with the people uh, with whom you're ministering. And I just say that for us, um, we've always looked at our CMF colleagues, not as not just as colleagues, but as, as family. They became family to us. Um, our kids didn't have any sense of uh, who their biological family was and who their family of faith was. They were all uncles and aunts. And, uh, and we leaned into that because uh, you couldn't ask for better, uh, better role models, better, uh, uh, better uncles and aunts, cousins. Um, That was, uh, that was an incredible uh, formative nurturing um, relationship that, uh, that we have continued to live into and continue to try to recreate wherever wherever we've been. That's really, that's really amazing and powerful. As we wrap up this time, I'd love to hear, especially I forgot that you were both a double major in English as well as in ministry. So it makes sense. Uh, your sermons uh, are just dripping with literary uh, aspects of different authors um, and are rich with uh, word pictures and and are touch touch my wife and I uh, in different ways uh, than than a typical sermon does, and it makes sense that you have a deep love for various books and different authors. And so, I'd love to think about or for you to share with us what the during those eight years of ministry and even now, uh, what are some books or some authors that have sustained you in ministry? Um, and that you would maybe recommend for some of our missionaries uh, that are listening to this podcast. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of them. I would say read widely uh, for starters. Uh, read whatever interest, interests you. Read um, read broadly. Um, for me, some of the authors uh, would be uh, Frederick Buechner would be uh, one of one of the guys who really feeds my soul when I read him. Uh, he's still alive. He's in his 90s, but uh, what a wonderful writer he is. Uh, B-U-E-C-H-N-E-R, Frederick. Um, certainly, uh, Eugene Peterson has been a, a role model and uh, has probably saved my bacon a few times. Um, I started with his book, uh, Run with the Horses, Studying the Life of Jeremiah. And uh, that was before I knew that who he was, and maybe before before he was who he became. I, I'm not sure about that, but uh, he's been a constant companion uh, in ministry for me. Um, uh, I would also um, really uh, recommend reading uh, history, and uh, I love uh, reading lots of different eras of uh, of history. Um, but, uh, uh, right now I've been reading uh, some Graham Greene novels. They've been really, really a lot of fun as well. And, and very poignant, uh, politically uh, speaking in, in, in this generation. One other guy that I would recommend for teams, I tell people if I only had five books to take to, uh, to some new mission setting, one of them would be um, Edwin Friedman's book called Generation to Generation. He's a, a rabbi and a psychiatrist who wrote a lot about family systems. And I think that he's done more to help teach me about 
my own family system, my biological family, and uh, the family of a, of a team or a, a mission team as well. Mm-hmm. And it uh, helps you to figure out how to pour health into that team and how to navigate uh, its craziness. So uh, Frederick, uh, excuse me, Edwin Friedman, uh, you got to read some of him. We'll, we'll put him, uh, uh, him and Beekner and Eugene Peterson. Uh, we'll be sure to put some links uh, to some of their materials or at least an Amazon link of some sort so it can guide people to those pivotal books. Uh, I know I came to love Beekner and Eugene Peterson uh, just being there a part of the Hopwood Christian Church in our uh, first years of marriage, uh, living there in Johnson City and under your leadership. Um, I came to really appreciate both those authors as well. Let me let me add two more while I'm at it. Yeah. Uh, you absolutely have to read some Wendell Berry. And I would recommend a great spiritual author, Carlo Corretto, mm-hmm. monk. Uh, you'll, you'll love him as well. Yeah, we'll absolutely put those out there as a link. And uh, even I know you gave my wife, Erin, uh, letters from the desert, uh, just this last year on her 40th birthday. And, uh, I actually just finished it this morning, uh, funny enough in my devotional reading, uh, and it's a powerful book, uh, by Carlo Corretto. So I appreciate you sharing it with us and continuing to inspire us to find other voices of faith, uh, that either have gone before us or that are currently speaking right now, uh, into our world. Yeah, you got to be at least 40 years old to get into Carlo, but yeah, great stuff. Yeah, he even mentions that in that that particular book. I thought that was really interesting that he talks about 40, uh, 40 years and the pivotal aspect of that year and for him uh, and even for his calling into ministry and how his ministry changed, shifted gears. Tim, I'm deeply uh, appreciative of this time that you've given to us today. Uh, and for your legacy of faith uh, as a part of the ministry with CMF International, both with the Maasai, but then as you continue to pour into missionaries with CMF that are currently serving, and for the ways that you continue to serve at Hopwood Christian Church. Thank you, Tim, for this time and for your family and for always welcoming uh, me and my family into your home. Grateful for you. Thanks, Jake. We love you guys. It's always, always good to be together. You're always welcome. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Fellowship Podcast by CMF International. I hope you were also challenged and encouraged just like I was by this conversation with Tim Ross. Tim had a variety of different types of ministry that he was doing with the Maasai in Kenya. But I think the one thing that he focused in on and that I think we need to take away is that he always had other leaders, young men with him uh, along for the journey that he was setting an example for, for how they should be doing ministry as well. And I think that's something that we each need to be thinking through in our own areas of ministry. Who do I need to be taking along with me? Who do I need to be setting an example for? I also think it was important to remember uh, the things that sustained him were his family life, his team, and then leaning into uh, the village life, uh, not pushing away from the people he's trying to do ministry with, but leaning into those relationships. Thanks for listening. Now get out there and connect with what God is doing in the world around you.